This week, we're back to continue chatting about the rad female bike racers of the 1890s. In the previous episode, I spoke with Roger Gillis, the author of Women on the Move. Roger is the person who has documented the collective stories of the forgotten female bike racers of the 1890s, and we talked about how these women surfaced from regular working-class jobs to a spotlight in bicycle track racing that was loaded with tensions to do with Victorian gender roles, what constituted femininity, and scandalous but practical cycling outfits that induced Victorian pearl clutching on a monumental scale. But at the conclusion of the previous episode, there was still some fascinating things that Roger and I had yet to discuss. That these women slammed into tracks at high speeds and hopped back on their bikes, bleeding and bruised. And in a patriarchal world turned upside down, that they raced for money and that they were in a position to hire and lead the men in their lives. So let's do it. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. Now, at the core of these races were women pumping out exceptional feats of endurance. But it was the very foundation of these races, the tracks themselves, that raised the coolness factor of these ladies by like a thousand. Now, because these women were not officially sanctioned by the League of American Wheelmen as official bike racers, there really wasn't a governing body to oversee the standards of the tracks they raced on. Tracks were often thrown together right before the race and didn't follow any set of specifications. And this would cause a number of challenges the women would have to overcome on the fly. You can imagine a small track with steeply banked curves and a fairly steeply banked straightaway in an auditorium or an ice rink or maybe a a baseball field. And the spectators were generally on either uh, stands that were built for the event because it was not made, you know, it wasn't an arena made for bicycle racing. So they would build stands for the event, you know, really right on top of the racers. A couple of thousand people in, in Chicago and Minneapolis and Philadelphia and, and, and Columbus and Cleveland, they might have eight or 10,000 people. So they had, you know, big crowds, um, all paying 15 cents or a quarter to come watch this event for two or three hours in the night. Uh, bands would play, so there'd be music pumping all along. The promoters would use those bands to keep the women going fast. You know, if they started to get into a kind of a easy gait, they would pump it up with a march and they would go faster. And um, the fans would cheer for Dottie to go faster and Dottie would respond. And, you know, so uh, cigar smoke everywhere. You know, it would, it, would, it would be a great film. You know, if somebody were to recreate that, it would be a fantastic film, I think. Just as a comment, too, I'm assuming with all those people packed in, it was sort of like standing room only, shoulder to shoulder. That's the way I view it. Is that accurate? Oh, I think so. Yeah. The more they could pack in, the better. Yeah. And if we're talking about these, you know, outfits that these poor women were wearing, you know, totally covered skin, it's going to be hot enough anyway. Right. If you're kind of if you're just racing around that track, but let alone all the body heat from thousands of people in that arena, it had to have been just a sauna. Yeah. I think something really important to touch on, if I understood it correctly, is 
you know, you have these, these tracks that are thrown up anywhere they can be, any arena that's going to, that's said that the race is going to be here, which means that you're always adapting the track to the space as opposed to the other way around, which means that every time these women hopped on a track, it was different, right? You couldn't rely on muscle memory from all of your training. You had to constantly be adapting at high speeds. So what would that have looked like or been like? That's right. So uh, the tracks did vary quite a bit. The largest tracks they raced on were probably a quarter mile. Um, sometimes an outdoor cinder track, they would race on a quarter mile track. And the smallest I saw was right here in Grand Rapids, actually, uh, 22 laps to the mile, which is really, really tight. I mean, we're talking probably 250 or 260 feet around. Um, so uh, the, the women definitely had to adapt to the, to, the, to the track. They chose their gearing and they would have to kind of live with that. And uh, if they chose... If they didn't know how big or small the track would be, they might choose the wrong gearing for the size track they were racing on, and they were just out of luck. You know, uh, some of the racers had two bicycles, but most just had one that they would use. One of the other kind of dimensions to the non-standardized track was it was very difficult to have reliable records. So one of the fascinating things about the 1890s and really the, that whole era was the United States was really consumed with statistics and uh, numbers. They were keeping track of everything. You know, we, the, we were in an industrial era, of course. And so it was, a, it was an age of machinery and keeping track of things and the growth of professions like accounting. You know, so baseball, which is also a, a, a working class sport that was a popular spectator sport of the era, owes part of its popularity to the box score. You know, the fact that it had a box score for every game. So you didn't have to go to the game to enjoy following baseball. And it's still true today. You know, people say, oh, Miguel Cabrera was two for four yesterday. Good. You know, I like him. And so the women's sport also had the daily box scores reporting on what the races were. But if it's a 14 lap track, 14 lap track, rather, um, how far they went is completely different from if it was an 18 lap track. And if it's a two hour race, it's completely different than if it was a one and a half hour race or a three hour race. And sometimes the promoters would extend the race because the ticket sales were good. So they'd say, you know what, we're going to go till Tuesday <laughs> just to sell more tickets. So um, it, it wasn't certainly a lot like an Olympic sport where everything's done the same way all the time. Now, the men, uh, that was true to some extent to the men, but the men were uh, overseen by a, by a governing body, the League of American Wheelmen which insisted on certain standards for their tracks. And they actually had, the women did too, but the men had officials that would measure the track beforehand and say, okay, it's an official track. These records today will stand. Whereas the women, it was more, um, you know, you said it was a 16 lap track, so they would have to do X number of laps in order to get 60 miles or whatever. But we measured it, you know, three feet short. So you're gonna have to adjust that. So they would actually kind of measure it for that reason, but they didn't really care how big the track was. They just wanted to be honest in the reporting of the, of the statistics. Now, another dynamic that played out on these tracks was a common trope that's still projected on women in business, in sports, and in day-to-day -day life. And that is rivalries. Something I would like to talk a little bit more about as well is like the dynamics between the women, um, rivalries, which is, you know, a very common trope, and whether that actually existed or how it existed. I think it was largely manufactured as it may be today. I don't know much about NASCAR racing, but my understanding is they, they have these feuds between the racers. 
in order to, you know, to, so you have your, you, you love this one racer and you hate the other racer, you know, that's part of being a fan, kind of like, you know, people like different sports teams. And so I think the women travel together in the same trains, they stay in the same hotels. They of course play the same sport, participate in the same sport. Um, and so I have a feeling that they were friends and, uh, Alice's treasure trove of material in Kansas indicates that they might've been friends too, because there were some photographs of them years later where they were kind of in a couple cases getting together and taking a vacation together, or there were some snapshots, kind of hard to see snapshots of the women um, in a particular town for a race, riding their bikes around town as on a, on an off day, you know? So uh, I think they were a little above all that, but it, it, help to sell tickets. I have to say that some of my favorite stories about these women are about the accidents and injuries they had. Now, let me explain before you jump to any conclusions. No, I'm not a sadist, but what I am is so interested in the profound message a woman picking herself up, dusting herself off, and getting on with it, despite visible pain and injuries, could send to a Victorian audience and what it felt like for the women to be in those races. I mean, they, were, they weren't as grueling in terms of endurance as those 24-hour races for the men, but they were grueling nonetheless. It sounds like they were pushing through injuries and bruises and breaks, and um, they just kept going. And what, how would that have been perceived at the time? Yeah. Well, first of all, you're right. It was a grueling sport. I mean, uh, I don't know anybody listening or watching you try riding at 22 miles an hour for a couple of hours. It's not easy. So, and then add in, uh, four or five other people who are trying to beat you around a track, uh, take away any helmets or any pads that you might want to wear. You're not going to have those. So, and, and then all the tracks are, are roughly made board tracks with splinters, you know, and so every time they fell, they would get cut, they would get splinters, they would get bruised, sometimes they would break a bone or fracture, I think they would get concussions quite often. Um, they were definitely tough women, and their toughness was part of the appeal of the sport as well, because the spectators would be amazed at the fact that they would fall, clearly get hurt, and jump up within 15 or 20 seconds and get on either the same bike or a different bike and keep going. So. Um, quite amazing. There were a couple of really interesting stories that you touched on about this in your book that um, there was one about, I believe it was Dottie Farnsworth, where she was wearing rings and she uh, she injured her hand and had to rip the rings off because of the injury, which then further injured her hand. She's bleeding, she's dripping blood, and she hops back on her bike and keeps going. That's right. And the fans, right? Love the fans love it. I mean, people want to, you know, I guess fans want to see, you know, their their sports heroes fighting through um, and I think another story uh, you mentioned as well that that really speaks to both this pushing through, but also kind of going back to these non-standardized tracks is there was something you touched on where there was a staircase that was built over uh, over a track, which apparently was a somewhat common practice in order yeah. to be able to, you know, access the center. But one was built particularly low. Can you talk about what happened there? Yeah. So like you said, uh, it was common for them to build a track from the grandstands down into the middle of uh, a bridge rather from the grandstands down to the middle of the track so people could go back and forth again this was the beginning of spectator sports so they were trying to figure out you know what works here you know what should we do and and get allowing people down in the middle of the track gets them closer to the sport and it's a good thing so people would go back and forth 
Well, in Detroit in, uh, I think, March or spring of eight, 1896, um, the carpenters just made it too low. And so the women literally had to duck every time they went around the track in order not to hit their heads. And inevitably, one of the women hit her head or actually her shoulder at first on one of the stanchions and um, tried to keep going and would go around again. And pretty soon she hit her head again. And according to the newspaper account, it was three or four times. And every time she just wallowed a little bit more, finally she had to give up. But again, the fans loved it and admired her for it and, and cheered her on for it. Um, but um, that just the fact that these women were willing to put themselves out there and, and give up their bodies, whether it was just bleeding or whether it was the prospect, according to doctors of the era, that they might have long-term effects kind of speaks to their either interest in this prize money or the fact that they would like to uh, change the way people view their their sport and their and, and themselves. So I also have to admit that another one of my favorite things about these women were the visibly non-traditional dynamics between them and the men in their lives. All of these women had managers and or trainers. Managers and trainers took care of logistics, helped with bike maintenance and training, and held the riders upright and steady at the starting line as they waited for a race to begin. And in many cases, these managers and trainers were the racers' boyfriends and husbands. It's so interesting to see these men take on the supportive role of their working partners and wives. These women were the breadwinners of their families, and the men were there to support the women in that aim. It's not exactly surprising that the race promoters tended to avoid sharing the fact that female racers were married to begin with, let alone to their trainers. It was difficult enough for people to wrap their heads around the idea that a woman could be racing, let alone that there were also wives and mothers on those bikes. In Tilly's case, her husband Phil had always supported her racing. Phil was also a Swedish immigrant and was an avid rider himself. Though we don't know for sure, it's possible that they met through local cycling events, and by January of 1896, Phil, at the age of 17, and Tilly at the age of 20, was acting as Tilly's trainer, and they were married by December of 1897. Phil would always be at the center of the track, encouraging and coaching Tilly as she sped around. He was a devoted trainer and partner, and the two cared deeply for one another. And the fact that he was not only not threatened by, but devoted to Tilly's career speaks volumes about who he was and the faith he had in the raw strength of female athletes. I think that's a really very interesting point, and I think connected to that as well is this idea of the, the way these women shifted dynamics uh, in terms of clearly women being active, being athletic, and that automatically creates a more assertive idea of a woman. Um, but I also think that a pretty common thread for most of them was the different dynamics they would have between men in their lives, right? Like their men were their, their husbands many times were trainers or at least kind of managing them, right? But they were the the boss, right? They were the trade, they were the, the breadwinner. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I'm glad you noticed that because I, I, because I'm not a historian, I wasn't able to put everything in as much context as I kind of inferred, I guess, from the era. But I do think that's an important point that these men were in the subservient role. They, they were not the stars. Their, their wives or girlfriends were the stars um, or even their employer was the star if they were hired to be a trainer. And that was very, it was uncomfortable for people. And um, I, the, the, I think the whole, the sporting, the, the fraternity of sport writers who were covering this from city to city, 
dealt with it in various ways. Um, some of them are admiring and some of them are threatened, you know. Um, but from what I could see, the women themselves, I'll say Tilly Anderson and her husband, Phil, May Allen and her husband, Harry Jeffs, and notice that they have different last names, which I think is cool too. Um, Phil Sjoberg and Tilly Anderson, Harry Jeffs and May Allen. So these women kept their names for purposes of, you know, notoriety, um, very much like as women might do today and have been doing. But um, so, but I, my sense was that they were okay with it. The men of the of their lives were okay with it, and they. they but it was really people from the outside that that judged it a little bit. Now, after making a glorious stamp on history, I wanted to know more about why these women stopped racing, what happened to them, and ultimately, why most of us have never heard about this story. Something I'd love to kind of touch on next is really, you know, how these women finished out their careers and what happened to them after. So um, the sport really was completely finished by 1902. So it really started in 1895 and it ended by 1902. And that was even kind of really was 1900, 1901. And so the women kind of trailed off in some cases. Um, in a couple of cases, they did what the culture expected them to do at that time, which was they decided to have children and, or they got married and, and, and stayed at home. But for the most part, what happened to the sport was that the bicycle manufacturers had to withdraw their support because they started to, the, the bicycle boom started to wane a little bit. And so their sales were not booming anymore. And bicycle manufacturers started to get bought up by others. And, and as so often happens in the United States, instead of having one or two bicycle manufacturers per city, all of a sudden there were two or three national bicycle manufacturers. And they didn't really need to promote these races in the same way as they did in 1896 and 1897. So, so they kind of started to withdraw their sponsorship. And that meant that the, the, the money was from ticket sales only. And, and that meant that the prize money went down some. So for some of the women, it was, well, you know, it was worth it if I could make four or $5,000 a year, but it's really not worth it if I can make $1,000 a year. I think I'll stop now. And likewise, because the bicycle boom was waning, the novelty wore off. You know, it, the, the idea of watching people ride a bicycle around a track was at first startling. And because we didn't have a national sports scene, you know, there's, there's really no national sports media at that time. Um, there were just local papers. And so if they would go from Cleveland to Columbus, to Toledo, to Detroit, to Grand Rapids, to Chicago, every city saw something new. It was the first time they'd ever seen it before. And so they ran that circuit for a couple of years and then pretty soon, okay, this is the fourth year in Columbus. <laughs> you know, it's the ninth race in Columbus. And the fans started to say, yeah, we've seen this before, you know, and we love Tilly Anderson or whatever, but the crowds started to dwindle a little bit. So basically what the circuit did was they started to go to smaller and smaller towns. So that's when, um, you know, Zanesville, Ohio and Calumet, Michigan, and, you know, Jonestown, New York started to be the places where they would race. And so that worked for a while too, because it was still new to those people. Um, but of course, the main thing that happened was two things, I guess, really. One is that um, the automobile was on the horizon 
motorcycles, it was still two words, motorcycles came into being. And so people started to think, well, let's race those, you know, it'd be, those are the new thing. Um, and also those men's races that I mentioned earlier, the six day races, um, really started to get so grueling and even gruesome in the way that they would wear those men down over six days. And as many people have documented, um, they were using all manner of drugs and, and um, anything they, every, any stimulant, stimulant they could possibly find, they would try so that they could race longer in those six days. And finally, by about 1898, um, state legislatures actually got into the act and said, no more, you, you, you really cannot do a 24 hour a day uh, sporting event in this state or in this city. And so they, so effectively six day bicycle racing was banned for men. And because the women's races were also six day races, uh, that they kind of, it, it got folded in and people started to think that those were banned as well. And that actually was the history that I learned when I started my research was that the, the women's races were banned. And I really found no evidence of that. They were not actually banned. They just they just started to become less popular. Um, and so by 1901 and 1902, they were going to small towns. They were racing now for several hundred people or maybe a thousand, as opposed to the big crowds of earlier. The bicycle itself had lost its novelty. Uh, people were now riding used bicycles. They weren't riding bicycles after work. They were just using it for transportation when they needed to. Um, so the whole thing just kind of died down. And, um, so the women had a good run, you know, <laughs> they, they didn't have many options after the sport died down. Dottie Farnsworth, uh, who, as I said before, was interested in the theater, kind of hooked on with a circus and she was married, but her, her husband was a traveling salesperson. So he uh, didn't mind that she was traveling around with the circus and uh, she was riding what they called a, um, it's like a circus whirl, a very tight track you know, maybe 15 feet in circumference, you know, you know, racing around just by herself, just kind of defying the laws of gravity was basically the trick. And so it was just a, a trick that she would perform in front of crowds as part of the circus. And um, as you know, from the book, she, she died uh, from blood poisoning that she got from an internal injury on that track. So she did not die on a regular bicycle track, but on that, that uh, whirly gig, I can't remember what they called it. Um, and uh, Tilly and May Allen and Helen Baldwin, some of the other big racers, I think just uh, went into private life. And um, I think in, in their cases, I don't know much about their, their later life. I know Tilly's later life. Like I said, she lived to 90. She became a masseuse in Chicago um, and kind of a, a nurse essentially. Uh, in Chicago and then retired. I think she had enough money to retire. She ended up up in Minnesota, building a log cabin and living on a lake. Um, and she had a nice, nice long life. And uh, Lizzie Glaw, who was probably, probably Tilly's chief rival in terms of uh, ability, died of uh, typhoid fever in 1902. So it was a time when people could die quickly. Uh, Tilly's husband died in 1902. Um, uh, one of the women, and I, I don't make much of it in the book, and I'd like to follow up in it with more with her, but uh, her name was um, uh, Bertha Wagner. She was also a German immigrant 
and she uh, kind of was on the fringe of the racing crowd, but she was pretty good at it. Um, she was unique too, because she was an office worker from Cleveland. So she was kind of a middle-class person. She ended up being an editor for the Cleveland Plain Dealer actually in Cleveland. Um, in 1932, she wrote an article about the era and it was published in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And she wrote it under her married name, Bertha Schaefer, talked about Bertha Wagner, but never revealed that it was her. Uh, I only know it's her because of the genealogical records I found. And I saw that she had married somebody named Schaefer. So, um, but she, she kind of wrote the same as an article. She wrote the book that I wrote in 1932 saying, hey, this is a forgotten era. Let's remember these great women racers. Um, and uh, she ended up writing a one-act play at some point and was an editor, like I said. I think she was an interesting professional woman at that time and a very good athlete because she could ride the, she could compete in those races while holding down an office job. Wow, I mean, she sounds fascinating. Um, I'm so glad she wrote something. At least there were like filling in gaps as time went on a yeah. little bit. You know, I think that one of the fascinating and of course tragic pieces of it is how this just completely disappeared. And I think one of the more poignant points of your book to me, something that just really stuck with me was that you spoke with family members of, of these racers and many of their descendants had no idea that they had done this, just no idea. And I wondered like how... I you think they would be so proud. Is it something like, why wouldn't I'd be telling everybody I'd be like, guess what I did. And, um, you know, I wonder why the conversation wasn't had, why that wasn't really shared. Do you have any insight on that? It's hard to say. Um, I just recently heard from Lizzie Glaw, a relative of Lizzie Glaw, uh, the woman who died in 1902. And, and she just heard from a great grandmother or something when she was a child that she was related to Lizzie Glaw, but she didn't know anything about it. And so I shared with what, what with her what I had, but um, it, it's amazing how many times I've heard that same story, which is uh, either I didn't know, or yeah, I had a, we had a vague idea about that, but only Alice was the, was one of these people that was super proud of it and kept all this stuff. And I was sure that when we published this book, that there would be people coming out of the woodwork saying, Oh, I've got a scrapbook too, you know, from my, great grandmother or whatever who raced in the races, but it just hasn't happened. Wow. So, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, you know, I'm hesitant to liken it to a soldier, you know, coming home from world war one, but there was something about that, that the women apparently just didn't want to talk about later in their life. Um, it was uh, something that they kept quiet and it could be that they're kind of classic immigrant Americans from, you know, European immigrants who are kind of tight lipped and not, not very, you know, uh, I don't know, forthcoming with their life story with even relatives. Um, could be that, and it could be that some of them died young. Um, mm -hmm. You know, one of the great, you know, from the book, uh, Lisette, with a French import who was uh, really a great story in of herself. Um, I think she died around 1920 or 21. You know, she, they just didn't live that long mm -hmm. in America at that time. You know, people right. didn't live as long. So, and many of them ended up not having children not because they couldn't, but, but um, because they were actually, um, during their childbearing years, they were making thousands of dollars a year riding bicycles. <laughs> right, you make a choice. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I do um, think too that, um, because I mentioned before, there was really no national media. I mean, the, every city had a newspaper or many newspapers really. And so these women were famous all across the country, but they were famous in every city. Not, they weren't famous nationally. So there was no national story to keep that era alive. And so 
if it weren't for Alice's trunk, all of these stories would have stayed in the archives of digital or microfilm or paper collections in small town libraries across the country. Um, so it, it's been there, you know, that history has been there, but it just, it would be, would have been very difficult for somebody like me to dig all that up. And of course, no, somebody like me would not have known to dig it all up, you know, because it didn't come, come to us. So they might've come across that article from 1932 and said, oh, I wonder if I could learn more about this. They might have, you know, um, but as it turns out, as I said at the beginning, this is serendipitous because if it weren't for that postcard in Grand Rapids, and if it weren't for the fact that Sue was able to publish this book, and if it weren't for the fact that Alice, uh, you know, wrote to Sue and, and introduced herself, and then the fact that I met Alice and volunteered to write the book, and then went out and found all these, and looked at all these scrapbooks, um, a book like this, a history like this, would, would be unable to be recovered. How lucky we are that so many chance happenings led to this amazing story of early female bike racers coming to light. In the years I've spent investigating the lives of women, I've found that women's stories tend to be hiding just below the surface. But like Roger, if you go digging a bit, you'll typically find a story that is even more extraordinary than you could have imagined. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. So this time I wanted to do something a little bit different. Since Roger has been through a pretty insane research process, I wanted to ask him how he went about his process and how he found such amazing information about these women. Given how much, you know, there wasn't necessarily a hint of a larger cohesive story, right? As you said, there may be pieces in individual libraries or newspapers. How did you go about putting this together? Um, it sounds like, you know, Alice was a wonderful resource, uh, but what else did you do? Yeah, so just to be clear, what Alice has is, um, so Phil and, and Tilly subscribe to a news clipping service. So somebody would, would clip out news articles or sports page articles of, of her races and collect them and then send them to them. And so, uh, and Phil pasted them into a scrapbook and, and they have four volumes of scrapbooks with just page after page after page of newspaper articles clipped from uh, newspapers. So that was my primary source. And I, I photographed every page of those four volumes and I just blew them up on a screen and read them. And took, I had to take notes because they, a lot of them were difficult to read. So I almost transcribed them. You know, I, it, it was like, I, it, my way of learning is to, you know, write. So I was just kind of typing along and at first I was taking notes and then I thought, you know, I need all this. So I just started basically transcribing them. And so I had this story unfold for myself as I, as I did that. Um, many of those articles would be impossible to find today because either they're no longer in collections or they were never digitized, or you would have to go to Salamanca, New York or something to find it. Um, so it's amazing that she has all those and it's a, it's a real resource. 
So that was my primary method. And then, of course, nowadays you can do a lot of digital searching. So I subscribe to newspaper archives and I work at a university. So I was able to get uh, archival newspapers through that too. And so I supplemented my reading uh, because all these were just Tilly's races. So I was able to research other races and, and find other news articles about those races uh, that I did have. Um, and then in some cases, I went to local libraries. I, I went up to Minneapolis, I went to Chicago, I went to Cleveland, I went to uh, New York, I went to Akron, you know, and, and these were fun trips. You know, you go and you go to the local library and you ask what they have, and then they get all excited because you, you're looking at something that they haven't really thought about either. Um, so I enjoyed all that. Um, and then there, there were some um, bicycle history books and some women's sports history books that at least mentioned the fact that these races occurred, um, usually very either briefly or dismissively and often incorrectly. <laughs> so uh, the, the information that got passed down was not always very accurate. Um, so, uh, you know, I would say Ann Hall's book, Muscles on Wheels about the 1880s is a great resource to learn more about the larger context she is a sports historian, so she adds a little bit more than I do in my book. Um, and, um, you know, there's that, the book that, that your podcast earlier had referred to, which is uh, Sue Macy's uh, uh, Wheels of Change. And, uh, you know, that's a, it's a middle grade reader, so it's not um, very in-depth, but uh, it covers the era. And, and then there are lots of similar books that focus on the bicycle boom more generally. But... Um, it's disappointing in some ways, but um, I think to this day, I think mine is still the only real resource for that era in terms of bicycle racing. And maybe someday somebody else will come along and, and write more about it. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.